Testing, one, two, three, testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, LDS Law. Tonight's episode is different from any of the episodes I have done in the past. In this episode, I focus primarily on my background as a lawyer in the criminal justice system. I talk a little bit about conflicts of interest. I talk about the lawyer's code of professional conduct. And then I bring this background to bear on the LDS Church and why it is that the LDS Church seems to have a penchant for lawyers, not only calling lawyers into positions of leadership, but also having lawyers as a rule at the head of the church historian's office. The one exception to that being, of course, Leonard Arrington back in the 1970s, but the church seems to have rapidly realized their mistake in having a historian who is devoted to history. And once Arrington was put out of the office, the LDS Church continued its regular practice of putting lawyers in charge of the church historian's office, which practice the church continues to the present day. I am facilitated in this conversation by my good friend at Ramiumptum Ruminations, a sister podcast under the Mormon Discussions podcast umbrella. I had a great time talking about this subject, and I hope you will have a good time listening to it. And if you haven't checked out the great podcasts over at Ramiumptum Ruminations, I encourage you to do so. And now for my interview at Ramiumptum Ruminations. Welcome to a very special episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. Very, very special. Hey, you're still in the green room, so hold on. Give me just a sec. <laughs> I've got a very special guest today. You may have heard of from the, the title of the show, but um, I've got the famous, infamous, I'll let you be the judge, RFM here to discuss a very interesting subject. While I was preparing for an episode back in November... I was doing a bit of thinking and trying to dissect some of the words of Elder Oaks that he gave in an interview on the OPB. OPB? What's OPB? That's Oregon Public Broadcasting. (laughs) I meant meant to say PBS, but I said the wrong thing. Elder Oaks gets around. That's right. (laughs) There's no feed too small for him to appear on. He gave an interview to uh, PBS and a documentary called The Mormons. And in that, he made some statements about the relationship that the leaders of the church have with the church. And he related them to uh, in very lawyer terms. And so I thought that we would bring our, our resident ex-Mormon lawyer to dissect some of these phrases to better understand the relationship that the leaders of the church have with truth and with the church and with its members. So without further ado, Radio Free Mormon, you can come out of the green room now. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Ramiumptum Ruminations, or can I just call you RR for short? You can call me RR. You can call me Scott. You can call me names. Whatever makes you feel the happiest. Okay, well, I'm pretty happy this morning because I got invited to be on your show to talk about something that's near and dear to my cold lawyer heart. It's something that I don't really get into very much on any other podcast or haven't as of yet. I think people are vaguely aware that I am a lawyer, that I'm a defense attorney, that I have a practice, that I have been in practice for 
over 32 years now. I just hit the 32 year mark. So that's a long time. Congratulations. Yeah, that's a long time. Yes. In dog years, it's even longer. <laughs> we'll be able to talk about this, uh, some elements of the law, some basic principles of the law, at least they're basic to me and to most lawyers, and then maybe see how they apply to the LDS church. Because I think the LDS church has a great interest in the law and in lawyers and in having lawyers in positions of leadership in the LDS church. Exactly. And what I'm specifically interested in is the relationship they have with the truth and what responsibilities they have with the truth. It's, it's only a passing acquaintance that lawyers have with the truth. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll dig into that to understand it a little bit better. As it relates to representation as well, I want to understand clearly who they represent and who they do not represent. We'll jump into it from there. So I guess to, to start this off, I'll read the quote that kind of started my mind moving in this direction. Um, and this is from, as I said, the PBS special, The Mormons. That was 2006, right? It was 2006, yes. And it's the, um, the quote that he said. And who is this? I'm sorry, had you already said who this is? Uh, this was Dallin H. Oaks. I hear he's a lawyer. I've heard that too. He has a contest going now with Elder Uchtdorf. And the contest is whether Elder Oaks can say or refer to the fact that he's a lawyer or has been a lawyer more often than Elder Uchtdorf can say that he was a pilot. <laughs> And so this is specifically what he said. And this comes right after, I mean, there was two like buzz phrases that he said in this one. It's from the same, the same time that he said it's wrong to criticize the leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. That one gets a lot of play. That one does. That one does. And then just the very next paragraph, he says, but not everything that's true is useful. I am a lawyer and I hear something from a client. It's true, but I'll be disciplined professionally if I share it because it's part of the attorney client privilege. There's a husband-wife privilege. There's a priest-penitent privilege, and so on. That's an illustration of the fact that not everything that's true is useful to be shared. When I first read that, something about the relationship the leaders have with the church rubbed me the wrong way. So let's understand a little bit more about this attorney-client privilege. Well, first off, why did it rub you the wrong way? What stood out to me the most right there was that it was evident that the leaders did not represent the members. And I think that goes in contrast to what I'm going to put on my believer's hat for a minute here. Let's say everything's true. Let's see. Let's say all the doctrine is 100% literal and accurate. In my mind, God leading the church, Jesus leading the church, he would represent the people, not the institution. But maybe I'm wrong there in that assumption. Well, the first thing you've got wrong is imagining a God who is not a lawyer. <laughs> it's pretty clear that he, um, he favors lawyers when he's choosing leaders of the church. Well, absolutely. And have you looked at the church handbook? That was written by a lawyer. Since it was given by inspiration, ergo ipso facto, God must be a member of the bar. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we could compare the word choice in the uh, handbook with the word choice in the, the scriptures to see if there's any sort of comparison. <laughs> yeah, but let me just go ahead and talk a little bit about this comment by Elder Oaks. First off, I disagree with him. But let me start off with saying what I agree with him on. Yes, there certainly is an attorney-client privilege. 
As an attorney, anything a client tells me is privileged. And what that means is it stays between me and the client. I do not and indeed cannot ethically share anything a client has told me in confidence with anybody else, whether that's an attorney on the other side, whether it's the judge, whether it's uh, some guy walking down the street or even my nearest and dearest friend. Those things go in the safe, so to speak. And I am a keeper of secrets. All lawyers are keepers of secrets because of the attorney-client privilege. And that's something that is stressed very early on and very frequently. And it's just black letter law. Now, when Elder Oaks talks about the attorney-client privilege, that's obviously what he's focusing on because that's what he mentions first. Then he talks about a couple of other privileges, the, the spousal privilege. He calls it the husband-wife privilege. I'm sure that's what it used to be called back when he was practicing, which appears to have been only for a very brief period of time before he got called into uh, church leadership positions at BYU being the president, et cetera. And we know everything else has happened from there to where he's arisen to being an apostle and now the number two man in the LDS church. He's first up to bat. Yeah, he's not only the first counselor in the first presidency, he is also the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So he is the next man in line to assume the reins of leadership when and if President Nelson ever kicks the bucket. If. <laughs> Sometimes I think he'll be burying us all. <laughs> but when he says... I got Nosferatu vibes when you we were saying that, so <laughs> I, I don't know where that came from. But. <laughs> that is not dead, which can eternal lie. That's right. <laughs> and with strange eons, even death may die. Okay, there's our H.P. Lovecraft reference for the day. Yes, yes. Well, that was re referring to Cthulhu, not, not Nosferatu, but that's okay. Yes, well, you know, <laughs> tomato, tomato. That's right. <laughs> so what I'm doing here and what you're doing a great job of helping you do is trying to make the law interesting. And it can only be done with, you know, frequent cultural references and jokes because <laughs> the law is very, very boring. I went through three years of law school, as do almost everybody who has becomes a lawyer, right? Yeah. Oh, my word. It is so, so boring. At least it was for me. <laughs> You know, uh, law is like golf, I think. You're already boring me. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but some people like golf. I know that. I don't play golf. People ask me if I play golf. I say no, because, you know, they think lawyers and doctors play golf. And that's true to a large extent. But they say, why don't you play golf? And I said, because I'm worried that if I tried it, I would like it. <laughs> and I've got no time to find something that I like, that I want to do other than what it is that I'm busy doing. So, but getting back to this part that Elder Oak said about useful, mm -hmm. not all truths are useful. And that's where I'm going to part company with him because the whole point of the privilege is to keep useful information secret and privileged. Okay. And sacred. <laughs> no, I'm kidding about the sacred part, but secret definitely, right? If it's, if I, if a, Client comes in and tells me his name. Well, that's something that's a matter of public record. That's not useful to the other side. It doesn't make any difference if I say what his name is, right? Okay. But if he tells me something that is material to the case that I'm representing this client on, and I'll make him a guy so I can use he, all right? If there's something material to the case that is important that the other side not know, then it is my duty to keep it secret, all right? It is my duty to keep it secret because it's useful. 
The only time a privilege comes into play is if there's information that the other side would find useful to know. Interesting. So if you read that quote again, can you read that quote again about, you don't have to go to the other privileges, just what he said about the attorney-client privilege and useful. So he says, he's, and he starts off with that phrase, he says, not everything that's true is useful. I'm a lawyer and I hear something from a client. It's true, but I'll be disciplined professionally if I share it because it's part of the attorney-client privilege. All that's true. There's a husband-wife privilege, there's a priest-penitent uh, privilege, and so on. And that's an illustration of the fact that not everything that's true is useful to be shared. You see, that's the point. It's that conclusion that he comes to is useful to be shared. Now, I would say it's not ethical to be shared, but the reason that it's secret in the first place and not shared is because it is useful. Hmm. If it's not useful information, who the heck would care if you shared it? Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to give you an example, and I hope that there are some clear parallels here. Let's say you have, as a defense attorney, a client, and I'm throwing you a curve box. I didn't, I didn't tell you this beforehand. Let's say you have a client who is accused of something. Well, let's make it murder. That's always juicy. Let's make it murder. Okay. He's accused of murder. But right before the murder, he did something else equally as salacious. Equally as salacious as murder? Yeah. Do murder and calm go together? <laughs> calm and murder? Murder? So he does, he commits another murder, let's say. My Don Knotts fans will get that line. Go ahead. I didn't, unfortunately. I'm. That's okay. I'm just a few years younger than you. You can play the part of Bill Reel in this discussion. <laughs> I'm going to get in so much trouble. You know, I can't say that I'm as handsome as he is. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take the compliment. Well, can any of us really? <laughs> So let's say that, that this person also committed another murder right before, but he's only on trial for the first one. You have been told information regarding both murders. Two murders. Two murders, only on trial for one. In your discussions with the client, you found out about this other murder and he's, he has essentially confessed to it. What is your responsibility to the truth in this sort of a scenario? Well, the truth is an abstract concept. If we're talking about a person who comes into me and uh, tells me that they committed a murder, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Then my job, since that's my client and there's an attorney client privilege is to shut the hell up. <laughs> I don't tell anybody about it. I don't call the police and say, Hey, I got a guy here. He just uh, confessed to murder. You should come and arrest him. I don't mention it to anybody else. I don't call the newspaper. Mm -hmm. No, that stays with me. And I know that can sound strange to people. So it's a good example that you brought up. But it is unethical for an attorney to go blabbing about a confession to a crime that someone has made to them. It gets a little bit more complicated, believe it or not. Oh, I, I can imagine. <laughs> I always thought that was such a dumb law. Okay, that's a different movie, which many of my listeners will get. What's no? What was the movie? I, I uh, it was I Big the, Adventure. Oh, okay. See, I was born in the '80s, and I was a little young for the the Pee Wee movies when they came out. No, that's where he picks up this convict by the side of the road, and the and he, he says, "Well, what did you do?" And the convict says, "Well, you know those tags on mattresses that say do not remove under penalty of law." <laughs> yeah, well, I tore one off, and then Pee Wee goes. I always thought that was such a dumb law. <laughs> okay. But uh, now if a person has committed a crime 
and admits it to me, it is my job to keep that secret and to keep it safe. If a person is going to say that I'm going to commit a crime in the future, that's a different thing. That's a different thing because now that's something they're going to do in the future. And now my duties start to get divided Hmm. between my client. Okay. Because I'm not representing him on something he hasn't done. Your duty to the client and then society would be the other duty that you have to protect society. No, I have no duty to society. Oh, really? Yeah. Screw society. If he's, if he's confessed that he's planning on doing something else, he will do something else. Yes. Do you have a responsibility to, to say anything? Uh, yeah, you know, then it becomes more of a decision that the attorney has to make on an individual basis, Hmm. right? In other words, an attorney can share that and not be unethical or attorney doesn't have to share it necessarily and can just say, well, I didn't say anything because of attorney client. Let me give you a story. Okay. Yeah, of course. I was representing a client. This must've been 20 years ago in some kind of family law case. And he was an obstreperous sort and he was very, very mad at the judge. He felt the judge had been doing him wrong, mainly because he was getting some rulings against him. Believe it or not, that will happen from time to time. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) He had told me in my office that he was going to jump up in court, rush the judge, jump over the bench and punch him in the face. Okay. Now, I have no idea if he means this. Does he mean this? Uh, He could have meant it. In other words, this is a guy who you could imagine him doing something like this. But it could also just be an expression of why it is that he's so uh, frustrated, right? Yeah. And people say all sorts of things when they're angry. They do. They do. And sometimes it's more serious than others, right? The the Stokes referred to it as the temporary madness. Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh, I think the Norwegians refer to it as a berserker rage. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's some similarities there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, what I did in that case was uh, I practiced in a small county. I knew the judge. I had actually even, well, I knew the judge. I know all the judges. And I decided to go ahead and take the extraordinary step. It's the only time I've ever done it in 32 years of going and talking to the judge on the sly. Okay. Okay. Now, typically that's an ex parte con contact, but I'm not talking to him about any details of the case or anything like that. But I, I pulled him aside and I said, Hey, here's the deal. Okay. You know, this client. Yeah. And I just want you to know that this is what this client said to me. All right. Now, I don't know if he means it or not. The odds are he doesn't. I just want you to have a heads up when we're in court in case he gets it into his head to make good on his word and rush the bench. Yeah. And the judge says, okay, well, I appreciate your sharing that with me. And that was it. And my client never rushed the bench and there was never any big thing that happened. But that is what I did in that situation with a client who told me he was going to commit a crime in the future. From what you're describing, it helps me better understand the relationship the leaders have with the church as defense attorneys, essentially, because that's that's the vibe that I get with how they act. So I want to I want to present another thing to you, and I'll give you some parameters on how to think about this. Let's pretend that RFM, you have been elected to lead the church, and you represent the church as a defense attorney. And let's also say the church is true, everything's true about it, but so is all of the uncomfortable history. When you're representing the church and trying to teach people about 
you know, the history of the church or the truthfulness of, of X, Y, and Z subject. What responsibility do you have with the uncomfortable history as well as thinking as a defense attorney representing the church? Let me answer this this way, but first off by saying, I think you're getting to the entire point of this episode just a little too soon here, Scott, because <laughs> we just got started. And I know what the main point is that you want to get to. And I think it's a fascinating point. I think it's an important point. I think it's a point that everybody who's listening should hang on and wait expectantly and breathlessly <laughs> until we get to it. Well, perhaps that's a teaser then. Can I mention a couple of other things? Yeah, yeah. But I just got to say, I have ADHD and half an hour episodes are like as much as my attention span can do. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding? I'll record for as long as you need. Well, I don't know what the, the opposite of ADHD <laughs> is, but that's probably what I got because I can just go on and on and on. We're sitting here talking and I'm listening to you, but I'm like staring and at the, in the background. In my background? Yeah. The Angel Moroni must have visited you recently because I see something I'm probably not supposed to see. Oh, you see the plates, right? The plates on the desk. There was an individual who's a listener who made several sets of plates, more industrious than Moroni, based <laughs> upon the descriptions that were given of the gold plates. And he was kind enough to contact me and say, hey, would you like to have a set of these plates? And I said, wow, would I? That's fantastic. I'm also relieved that I'm not going to be struck dead for seeing something that I'm not supposed to see. We'll revisit that issue when the sun sets today. <laughs> okay. If you're still around, then you can brag. There we go. There we go. <laughs> but yeah, it looks really cool. I, I love those uh, gold plates on my... They turned out fantastic. On my desk. I don't even have to hide them in a log. <laughs> you should put a log on your desk as like a, a case for that. I know my desk is big, but a, a log? <laughs> I've got so much stuff on it already. Or a stump. Or something. <laughs> okay, so I want to tell you a few things about practicing the law as a criminal defense lawyer. Um, I remember going to church, and on a number of occasions, and this must be 20 years ago, there were members that would come up to me in the foyer, or the foyer, to say it as a Mormon would, yeah, in the foyer, and they would know that I was a defense attorney, and they would ask me about it, and then they would try and assure themselves that I was okay by saying, but I'm sure that you don't represent anybody who's guilty, right? <laughs> and it's just such a, a wonderfully um, oh, artless question. I'm sure you're not a bad guy. Like, that's essentially what they're saying. <laughs> and, I was, and I was trying to say artless. I think I'm using it correctly. It doesn't come up in everyday conversation, but it's sort of like an innocent kind of question, right? I didn't want to say naive because that has a negative connotation, but it was this beautiful, artless little question about, I'm sure you only represent people who are innocent, right? And I, my response finally came to be, no, innocent people generally don't need a lawyer. It's the guilty people who need a lawyer. Any defense attorney, 90% of the people they represent are guilty of something. Every now and then, every now and then, you actually represent somebody who's innocent. Hmm. It's a shocking experience. It's not the, the norm. And people sometimes think, well, <laughs> well, if you're representing someone who's innocent, wow, that's got to be a relief. No, that's when the pressure's on. Because you got to make sure that you get it right. That's when the pressure's on. Because if someone's really innocent, then you're really worried about them getting convicted of something they don't do, they didn't do. And by the way, um, newsflash, yeah, that happens. 
innocent people do get convicted every day. That's unfortunate. Oh, and let me just mention this about eyewitness testimony, because this is interesting about the eyewitnesses to the Book of Mormon and all sorts of other things. Yeah, yeah. We tend to think that eyewitness testimony is the most solid kind of testimony. By the way, there are two kinds of evidence, two broad categories of evidence that are considered under the law. One is direct evidence, and that is mostly eyewitness testimony. That's a witness saying, okay. I saw this happen, mm-hmm. or it could be I heard it happen. If you hear a crash or a yeah. gunshot or something like that, maybe you don't see anything or you hear screaming or um, an argument, whatever that is. But there is direct testimony that the witness is testifying that the witness directly perceived with one of the witness's senses. And of course, usually it's going to be sight. Okay. So that's direct testimony. And just the name of direct testimony makes it sound so impressive. The other broad category of evidence is called circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. And circumstantial evidence is everything that's not direct testimony. Things such as fingerprints or, you know, blood on the clothes, that sort of thing would be the circumstantial? Yes. Okay. Just making sure that I'm following. No, you absolutely are. Those are classic examples of circumstantial evidence. And so uh, what any person who's been through a trial as a juror Mm -hmm. comes to understand is that there is no distinction. In fact, there's a jury instruction on this, that there is no distinction between direct or circumstantial evidence. Okay. One is not greater than the other. It's up to the jury to assess the credibility and the weight of whatever evidence is presented to it. So direct evidence is I saw this. And circumstantial evidence, which, again, most people tend to think is the weaker of the two, can be what? Fingerprint evidence. Yeah. Well, that's pretty conclusive. A lot of people have been found guilty based on fingerprint evidence, if it's their fingerprint and if it's in the wrong place. Even if it contradicts what a uh, direct testimony would be? Yes. Now, if you think about that and you've got a circumstantial evidence, by the way, DNA is also circumstantial evidence. Because it's not direct testimony, right? So DNA, people getting found guilty on DNA, yes, happens all the time. And we can understand why, because DNA analysis has gotten to the point where it can basically exclude any other person on the planet statistically. Well, doesn't that almost contradict what you said where this... Which part? I'm just saying in my mind, the way I'm understanding you is some circumstantial evidence carries much more weight than direct testimony. Right. That's what I was trying to say. If I said it incorrectly, I apologize. You said previously that they carry the same weight or that they're one is not better than the other. Yeah. One is not considered to be better than the other for a jury. The jury is the one who has to decide what weight to give to what evidence. Okay. All right. And so if you have an eyewitness saying, I saw this and most people think, well, then that person saw it, unless they've got a reason to lie or something, right? But if this person says they saw it, then... Or they've forgotten what they saw. Right, they saw it. This is the guy who assaulted me. Or their story has changed with the fourth retelling. Yeah, the testimony I like best, (laughs) direct testimony, is this is the person who killed me. (laughs) Seriously, though. This is the person... Now, that doesn't happen that much. This is the person who assaulted me, all right? And so somebody goes to prison for assaulting with a gun or whatever, robbing the 7-Eleven. The clerk says, this is the guy. And we think of that as being strong. But what happens then when that contradicts DNA evidence? Yeah. Or fingerprint evidence? Mm. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that even though we tend to think that eyewitness testimony is very strong evidence, there are 
many cases. Have you heard of the Justice or the Innocence Project? Excuse me. No, I haven't. From the name, I'm assuming it's a project where you're trying to identify people that have been convicted wrongly uh, based on perhaps direct testimony where the evidence contradicted it. So these are usually people who've been in prison for decades based upon convictions for serious crimes. Okay. And then they're able to go back and do DNA testing if the DNA is still available in evidence somewhere and then run it through a DNA test and then find out whether they really were guilty or not. Interesting. And so they've had some success in freeing people in proving that they actually were not guilty of the crime that they were convicted of at trial based upon DNA evidence that exculpates them. And in a majority of those circumstances, or at least a substantial minority, but I think it's a majority of those cases, the individual was actually convicted based upon eyewitness testimony. So that should be a reason to have pause about how strong eyewitness testimony can be. Because if you've got people who were sent to prison based upon eyewitness testimony who were subsequently released because DNA evidence proved that they were innocent, then we should all think, well, maybe eyewitness testimony is not everything it's cracked up to be. Yeah. Interesting. It almost casts doubt on the whole by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Well, it certainly can when you learn that. And I was I was surprised to learn that myself a few years back. Hmm. That eyewitness testimony, uh, it can be very good. I mean, I think I'm seeing you right now on the screen. I know this is just done <laughs> on an audio format. I'm, I'm using a deep fake. This isn't actually what I look like. So you're not what you're seeing is not what you think. Oh, OK. Very good. These are not the droids you're looking for. But that's that's the thing about eyewitness testimony. The other thing that I would tell people, because it was like they were astonished that a Mormon would be a defense lawyer. And I would tell them, you know something? If I can get a guy that I know is guilty off on a technicality, it makes my whole day. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say that right to their face and then I'd watch for their expression. And usually it was one of alarm. The way you said that was so sinister. It was perfect. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. You know what the terrible thing about it is? Let's hear it. It's true. (laughs) I'd like to stick it to the man. (laughs) No, absolutely. And uh, people then get uh, very, very upset by that. Uh, But then I go back to a very famous attorney that I was listening to once again a long time ago, but this stuck with me. It was at a CLE. Uh, continuing legal education. And he was up there talking about how um, his friends would come up to him and talk about technicalities and getting people off on technicalities. You've heard that before, right? I've watched a couple of murder investigation shows in in my past. You're being funny now, you sly one. What this what this what this fellow said is when people come up to him and complain about defense attorneys getting clients off guilty people off on technicalities. Mm -hmm. What he always tells them is this. The Constitution is not a freaking technicality, except he didn't say freaking. So I'm trying to keep it clean because I know this is a family show. (laughs) Yeah, I, uh, I haven't sworn on the show yet, so. But that's the other side from the defense lawyer's point of view. You know, everybody else out there saying, oh, you're getting them off on a technicality. No, I'm getting them off because 
their constitutional rights were violated in one way or another. And the Constitution is not a freaking technicality. Interesting. So I got to tell you that part. Now, here's the other thing, okay? I've got a confidence with my client. And we're going to get to this. I know we're going to get to this. I've got a confidence with my client. And we have things that are in confidence with each other. But I also have a duty to the court. And I think that's what you're hinting at before. Yes. I have a duty to the court. I have got no duty to society. Society be damned. (laughs) (laughs) But I do have a duty to the court or it's also called the tribunal. Maybe I'm romanticizing this a little bit, but wouldn't wouldn't the duty to the court be like a stand in for the community? No, it's just the guy or the gal, the man or the woman wearing the black robe up there on the bench. Okay, but wouldn't they represent the community? At least that's not how I conceive of it. If you if you want to conceive of it that way, then I guess you can. And maybe there's some legitimacy to it. No, I'm, I'm just curious. I, I, I don't know. I try and maybe I overthink things. Overthinking things is not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes <laughs> it is. At least when I do it. When I do it, it's a bad thing. But attorneys have not only a duty to their client, like I've talked about, but they also have a duty to the court. And their duty is one of being honest with the court. You don't lie to the court. You don't deceive the court. You don't try and put one over to on the court. And that is called candor to the tribunal. Okay? Being honest with the judge. Candor to the tribunal. So lawyers have many duties. They're, they have one to their client and they have one to the court. And then the question is, well, what happens when those two things come into conflict? Let me go on before I talk about the conflict part, about the duty to the court. We have in this country, which is the United States of America, for those of you who might be listening overseas, and we have a system that is based upon uh, different parties, usually two. There can be more. Uh, I think there always has to be two in any lawsuit. <laughs> I mean, you could sue yourself. That would probably be a disassociative identity disorder thing. <laughs> and so we got this adversarial system, right? Yeah. And the idea is you got two people, they got their lawyers. You know, we used to have trial by combat. And then we had trial by fire, um, <laughs> trial by water. Wait, how far back in history are we going here? Oh, just a few hundred years. <laughs> But uh, now we have trial by jury. And trial by jury should not really be seen as something completely different from those other categories. It's really just a different variation on a theme. One of my direct ancestors, uh, Mary Dyer, nine generations back, was um, convicted and hung for being basically an evangelical. She was a Quaker and the Puritans were in charge and they... uh, They killed her for it. Everybody hates the Puritans. (laughs) Everybody hates the Puritans, everybody, but everybody loves the pilgrims. That's right. (laughs) The funny thing is, it's the same thing. Yeah, the pilgrims were Puritans. We look at them and fantasize about them as, you know, looking for religious liberty, but they were the zealots that nobody wanted back in England. Yeah, they were they were pretty hardcore. And in fact, I think it was shortly after Shakespeare died, thank God, that not that he died, but that it was after he died that the Puritans were finally successful for a brief period of time in shutting down the theaters in England. Crazy. Gives me uh, vid angel vibes for today. Eventually, they got themselves uh, 
un- unwelcome enough that they decided they better leave for foreign shores. <laughs> Sorry to sidetrack. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. And the what was it? And the Puritans got a shock when they landed on Plymouth Rock. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Sad story that. Oh, yeah. Very much so. So let me think here. Oh, there's actually this wonderful line from Twelfth Night where Malvolio is like a Puritan. He's the butler of the house. He's the head steward of the house under the lady. And he's always just reprimanding Sir Toby and the other people around Sir Toby who are lesser nobles and even maids. Uh, they got Mary in there, but uh, they're having fun one night and they're carousing and drinking and everything. And he comes down and gives them, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. You know, you're, you're up too late and you're making noise in the house and everything. And I, now I can't remember the line, but Sir Toby tells him, says, just because you are righteous does not mean that we shall not have cakes and ale. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so that's close. It may not be exact, but that's the idea. So where was I? Oh, yeah, I was talking about this idea about candor to the tribunal. Now, generally, you've got an adversarial system going on. So you've got somebody there to keep you honest, right? That's the idea anyway. And uh, like I said, um, this trial by jury should be looked at, I think, as a different version of the earlier trials. We have trial by combat. We've got trial by fire. We've got trial by water. And of course, water is very famous. You know, if you sink, then you're innocent. And if you float, you're guilty. So there's a trial by water. If you float, you're a witch. I got better. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a different. <laughs> that's a different scene. No, that was that was in the the witch trial. She turned me into a newt. No, I, I, got, I got better. I, no, I'm feeling better. Is what I thought it was. Bring out your dead. Okay, so you got a duty of candor to the tribunal, and there are certain limited numbers of hearings, which are called ex parte hearings, or ex parte, but ex parte hearings which is Latin for you've only got one party present. Okay. You don't have the other party there, but you're appearing in front of the judge. Now, generally you can't do that. But so there's a limited number of situations where you can, and it might be early on in the case where you're going before the judge on an emergency basis on a case that maybe just got filed and you need some emergency relief. And a lot of times it's in the form of a no contact order. Okay. And this is where uh, generally speaking at the outset of a divorce, uh, one party wants to jump the gun and kick the other party out of the house by making some sort of outlandish and frequently groundless accusation against the other party. <laughs> All right. So they go in front of a judge. Oh, we need this no contact order and have this guy. Why is it usually the guy? I don't know. It just usually is. <laughs> the guy out of the house. And so we can start with this divorce. Okay. Now, in those limited number of circumstances where you're in an ex party hearing, where you're appearing on behalf of a client for the judge, the other side's not there because they don't even know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, your duty of candor to the tribunal is even greater. All right. It's even greater. I mean, it's not like you can lie when the other party's there. (laughs) It doesn't make it okay. But it means you need to tell the judge everything about this case, good, bad, and indifferent, because you have to sort of substitute for the other party who's not there. Interesting. And you can't go and just tell the judge a bunch of crap that you know is not true to get your order at an ex party hearing Hmm. and do it without consequence. There was an attorney that I knew some years ago who went to an ex party hearing and under circumstances like what I described Mm -hmm. and said things that were not true and didn't say things that the attorney knew that would hurt her motion. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That came to light. She got, uh, I almost said excommunicated. (laughs) She got, (laughs) and in a sense she did. No, she got disbarred for that. So this is something that's very, very 
serious in the law. You've got to get up there and tell everything. By the way, there's also this idea, and it's been in the news somewhat, about um, FISA warrants, okay, where uh, usually it's the FBI or whoever it is going in front of a, a FISA judge to ask for a warrant. And in that circumstance, there's nobody else there, right? And generally speaking, I mean, whenever any uh, officer, detective, whatever goes in front of a judge for a warrant, there's not going to be another side there Yeah, to present, you know, well, but this is the other side of the story. And this is why there is not probable cause. Interesting. So in those circumstances, even though they're not attorneys and cannot be disbarred, they can be fired, I suppose. But police and FBI agents are under an increased duty to be absolutely honest with the judge. And that means telling the judge things that they know that tend to undercut their warrant. They have to give both sides of the story to the very best of their ability so that the judge has all the facts necessary to make that determination of whether there's probable cause. And if it turns out that you knew something as a detective or police officer that landed on the other side of what you're asking for, then, and that comes out later, yeah, that's going to be a problem. So the question, what you're bringing to mind here is, is there is no other argument presented if we're going to, you know, go back to this courtroom of the church and, you know, the, the leaders as defense attorneys defending the church, there's nobody presenting the opposite argument. So they would have this duty to the tribunal to present both, wouldn't they? Yes. Okay. Very much so. I'm making sure that I'm following you with the connection that you're headed towards. I'm not even sure I'm headed toward a connection. So if you can find one in there, good for you. <laughs> so maybe I'm giving you too much credit. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so if you're thinking about it in terms of a courtroom and the jury is the audience. Yeah. And you've got one, one person up there who's a lawyer representing a client. And all you're doing is telling the jury what it is that benefits your client and not telling the jury the stuff that doesn't benefit your client. Yeah, exactly. And then you want the jury to make a decision based upon that one representation from that one lawyer. That's the scenario that we were all in. How do you mean that? The, the connection I'm making here is that, that the only side of the story that we were ever given as active believing members was the positive spin on all of the events. But this positive spin wasn't even historically accurate. It was the mythologized retellings of history that are intended to be uplifting and teach the culture or the society the important things that, that the members need to know, but not even having any sort of relationship with accurate history. And so we, we're presented these, these myth stories about the foundation of the church as if they were true. And we're making decisions of about truth based on these myth stories, not accurate representations of what really happened. Regardless of whether it's true or not, we weren't told the, the accurate history of the things that happened. Right. And the reason why is because you've got one lawyer in the courtroom talking to the jury. And if there's another lawyer in there from the other side who wants to give the other side of the story, by the way, Elder Oaks is on record. And I've talked about this in a prior podcast from a CES address he gave. And it was 1985. I'm pretty sure it was. 
could have been 86, but I think it was 85, where he said that the church is under no responsibility to tell both sides of the story. Well, that's revealing his hand right there. Absolutely. That's why I remember it so well and why I've talked about it before. No, it's not something where we're just like guessing that they know bad stuff about the church that they're trying to keep from the members. It's that they're admitting it. Yeah. So we don't have to go draw a lot of conclusions. We can just look at his own words and see that. And the other thing is if there's a lawyer who's present from the other side, who would be um, in the in our scenario, someone who knows the bad stuff and wants to share it with the jury mm-hmm. so that the jury can actually have both sides of the story to make an informed decision. Exactly. Then what the church lawyer, what Elder Oaks does is he tries to remove that attorney from the courtroom by telling the jury that you can't listen to the other side. You shouldn't listen to the other side. You should only listen to what I tell you, what the church tells you, because I'm the one telling you the truth, right? And what anybody else wants to tell you, i.e. the other lawyer with the other information that he wants to express, that's just distortions, deceptions, and anti-Mormon lies. In my mind, you know, going to the example of a client that's innocent, we use the example just because I'm trying to be as lenient as possible. Let's say the church is true and it does have all this uncomfortable history. Wouldn't they still have the responsibility to share both sides? That responsibility to, to truth, if you will, or to this tribunal that you've been explaining, wouldn't that still be there even if the church is true or even if the client is innocent? Well, let me give you a famous lawyer answer to your question. It depends. <laughs> because I think it depends because it's clear to me that what the leaders of the church are doing is they know, which by which I mean they believe strongly that the church is true. I believe that they believe that the church is true. I know there's dispute about this whole mind reading process. If we don't have a window into their minds, and so there's no way for us to definitively say one way or the other. And so the assumption that they do believe is the most likely, I would say. I think so, too. And it explains why it is they lie their asses off mm-hmm. because they know it's true. And I talked about this in a recent podcast, but the, the thing is they know it's true. And they also know the um, negative information. By the way, I also want to add in here that it used to be that people could wonder whether they knew the negative information up in the top echelons of the church. Uh, they're so busy. They're running around. They're organizing stakes. They're calling people. They're doing the missionary thing, you know, with the little chart and the names by all that inspiration uh, every other week or whenever it is they do it. So they don't have time to study the history. They don't know all this negative stuff. So therefore, they're not keeping it from the members intentionally or knowingly because they don't know this stuff. The fact is, is that that day has gone. That would be, that would have been called plausible deniability. But I think that's gone because of the publication of the Gospel Topics essays yeah. on the church website. They may not be signed by anybody. They may not be dated, but they are all approved by the top leadership of the church. And that's everybody. The First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve before they can go up on the church website. Otherwise, they would not be there. Yeah. So every single member of the top 15 have read all of the church essays. They know the information that's in them. And therefore, they no longer have the ability to deny that they know anything that's in them. And I'm not saying they actually ever denied it, but other people want to rush to their defense and deny it for them. That's an argument that is gone with the Schwinn. 
So what you're saying is these are basically proclamations and active believing members should hang them on their refrigerators? Um, no, the only thing you hang on your refrigerator are the declarations that are signed. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. You see, it's the signatures that give them value. That's when we know that they're really behind them. Yeah. They want to have their cake. So there is a little bit of deniability still then. No, no, not at all. I don't care if they sign them or not. The fact that they're up on the church website and we know the system and the process that they went through and committees cobbled these things together and they had to be approved in order to go up on the church website. I was saying just to make make it clear. Oh, okay. Very good. Very good. Now, where on earth were we? We were talking about candor to the tribunal. We're talking about uh, duty to the client. Oh, and sometimes those can come into conflict. Yes. Let me just tell you this very briefly is that if for whatever reason you end up knowing that your client is guilty and there's no way you would know your client is guilty unless your client sat down opposite you, looked you in the eye and said, I'm swearing 100% true right now. I'm guilty. I did this. I killed the guy. Okay. Here's my signature and here's the weapon. Right. Then you would know. Uh, Actually, some attorneys, and I think Elder Oaks is one of them, and I only say this based upon things that he said in the past, is that even if a client told him he was guilty, he could still say, well, I don't know he's guilty. I know he told me he's guilty, but I wasn't there when the murder occurred. Therefore, I don't know that he's guilty. But I think that's a minority position. There you go, quoting Hamilton, just like our last conversation. You weren't in the room where it happened. Yeah, right. (laughs) But I think that's a minority position. I think most lawyers, if their client looked at him and said, I'm guilty, then they've got a conflict, okay? They have a potential conflict. They only have a conflict if the case goes to trial. If it's resolved before trial, well, they're not going to tell anybody about it. Not to be ethical and not to follow the rules of professional conduct and the attorney-client privilege. But if they tell them they're guilty and it goes to trial, now there is a potential for a conflict between my duty to my client and my duty to the tribunal. Because I have to be honest with the tribunal. If my client doesn't testify, I'm fine. Right? Because I'm not involved in putting one over on the court, i.e. suburning perjury. Because... Uh, presumably, if my client is going to testify in his defense, he's not going to get up there and tell him, tell the court and the jury the same thing that they told me. I'm guilty. Okay, that would kind of uh, do away with the whole purpose of having a trial in the first place. So he'd be getting up there and lying. Mm-hmm. And I'm the only one who would lie. Uh, I'm not, sorry. <laughs> Boy, was that Freudian or what? Okay. But um, boom. I'm the only one who would know is what I meant to say. I'm the only one who would lie is what I really, really meant to say. Well, then what's your responsibility if you know for certain that the client is up there lying to you and the jury? And so generally, there's two things that a lawyer can do. First off, let's be clear what a lawyer cannot do ethically is put a client or any other witness, but it's usually your client on the stand to testify to something that the lawyer knows is not true. Yeah. Because now... Uh, You know, it's one thing for a person to do that. And that happens all the time in courts. Believe it or not, people lie all the time under oath, especially in family law court, right? In divorces, there's lying going all the time. That's sometimes referred to as the perjurer's pit (laughs) is in family law, right? It's got nothing compared to criminal defense when it comes to lying. (laughs) By the way, hang on a second here, excuse me. There was another attorney who said something in a CLE once uh, when he talks with friends. He says, you know, as a criminal defense attorney, I have to deal every day with people who were, will get up on the stand, 
swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and then proceed to lie through their teeth. And I'm just talking about the cops. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. So, but if they go up there and you know, they're going to testify and they're going to lie, then you can do two things. You cannot allow that to happen because then you are part of the suborning of suborning, excuse me, of perjury. Okay. And that's a crime. And it's also a violation of your duty of candor to the tribunal. So there's one of two things that you can do. First is to withdraw. So you direct them to be as honest as you know how to be. (laughs) there's yeah i could say they're as honest as they know how to be and proceed with no problem right no they have to be honest and if i know they're lying then i can't put them on the stand to testify to something i know is a lie so there's one of two things that can happen one that happens which is probably the most common is the lawyer can withdraw okay from representing the person so i know too much and of course that presents its own complication because you have to file a document, a declaration as to why it is you're withdrawing, right? <laughs> that would basically give away what you know. Yeah, you can't put in the in the document that you're filing with the court to withdraw. My client admitted to me that he was guilty and I can't put him <laughs> on the stand. So I need to withdraw from the case. So there's a sort of a ritual thing that you go through. And I've done it uh, on a couple of occasions. It doesn't come up that much. But uh, a declaration to the judge saying, look, uh, there are certain duties that I have to the court and you cite to the the rules of professional conduct. And then you just say, I I cannot fulfill those duties in this case. Hmm. And the whole thing is, is that you know what you're saying. The judge looks at it and the judge knows what you're saying. The prosecutor looks at it and the prosecutor knows what you're saying. And generally, the judge is going to go, "Okay, you can withdraw. So the other thing, and then hopefully this this idiot client won't confess his guilt to the next attorney who represents him. <laughs> so what you're saying is if I'm guilty, don't tell my attorney. Uh, right. <laughs> no, I just I just think it's fascinating because the the connection here is that again, regardless if it's true or not, those representing the church are aware of the damning evidence against it. They know the things about the history that are uncomfortable. They know the things about the changes to the scriptures or, or whatever it is this, the sticking point is that we want to discuss. They know all of that. And they actively have worked against this whole ethical system that you're talking about, where they have stood up and, and listened to and approved things that have spoken completely in contrast to what they know to have happened and what they know to have been the historical events. Yes. And then they try try and shut down anybody giving the other side of the story. And Elder Oaks talked about too, about that too, about the loyal opposition. Remember that talk? That there in some elective bodies, there's a group called the loyal opposition. Well, there's no warrant for any loyal opposition in the church. And why not? Like, I would just, I would love to get these guys in a room and not like ask these questions out of hostility, but I just, I just would love to know why. Why can't there be a loyal opposition, a devil's advocate, if you will, in one of these scenarios? Well, the reason why is because we don't want the beans to be spilled. (laughs) And our experience has shown us that if people find out about these beans, then they're more likely to leave the church. And if they're an investigator and they find out about the beans, they're less likely to join the church. The church is the only vehicle through which exaltation can be achieved. And therefore, in order to assure the maximum number of people being saved and exalted, it is our duty to hide the beans. 
saying the maximum number of people to to enjoy these beans. <laughs> yeah. So that that's the way they view it. It's almost a utilitarian sort of we have to do this because any sort of other method will result in fewer people enjoying these beans. It might look like that the church isn't true. If you knew all about the negative beans, right? If you know all the negative information, it might look like the church is not true, but the church is true. And therefore we need to keep you from knowing about that information. So you don't lose out. We're playing for the souls of men. It's very utilitarian. Yes, it is. And truth has to go by the wayside. And Elder Oaks was very clear that that is what he adopts when he says that we have no responsibility in the church to tell both sides of the story. Their duty is not to the truth. Their duty is to the church. And that was the connection I was hinting at earlier when I said that scenario. Yes. I thought I'd bring us around to it before (laughs) you lost all attention. No, I'm still here. I'm still with you. Okay. But I do have my fidgets that I'm tinkering with to keep paying attention. (laughs) Then what I want to contrast then is the, as I said uh, before, the, the way that they are interacting and the way that they, their relationship with the truth and with the church clearly shows that their role is to represent the organization and not the congregation. But the way that it's presented in scripture and by them, frankly, is that they're representatives of the congregation and of the human race. And so then maybe just postulate here, what what would it look like if the prophet represented the people? Well, honestly, I think that they conceive of themselves in that way. Now, first off, there's also the elder Packer talk about remember which way you face, right? Yeah. Which is all general authorities. They have to remember which way they face. And by that, he means, as he explains, that you face toward, okay, do you face toward the prophet or do you face toward the people? In other words, do you represent the prophet to the people or do you represent the people to the prophet? In which case you'd be facing the prophet, right? He was very clear. No, remember which way you face. You don't face the people to the prophet. You don't represent the people to the prophet as an apostle or as a general authority. You represent the prophet, i.e. the church, to the people. And that's what he meant by remember which way you face. I think they conceive of themselves as looking after the interests of the people because they are trying to get them into heaven by hook or by crook, by telling them only the information that will get them there and not telling them the information and in fact suppressing the information that will not get them there. The way you're describing this almost explains to me how they act when some of the more heinous things happen, like the the discussions that you and, and Bill Real have had, you know, mission presidents behaving badly um, and discussed in many other locations where a church leader has, has done something wrong. The church leaders, their responsibility is to the church and not to the congregation. Even when the congregation has been harmed by the leader of the church, they still are focusing on the organization instead of the congregation. And I think what we're what we're talking about here is what's influencing that sort of a behavior. 
Right. And I see that as a further manifestation and a darker manifestation of the same kind of attitude that the LDS church leaders and even the members have about bad things happening when Mormons do bad things. Because I think that every member of the church knows, and it was certainly my experience in the church, is that it is a missionary church. Every member is a missionary. We are supposed to try and get our friends interested in the church and hopefully to join the church. Yeah, spread the good news. Absolutely. I think we all understand that if the bishop is a pedophile who got caught and convicted, Mm -hmm. that that is not something that is going to help our friends join the church. Yeah. And if just any kind of scandal happens, it's not going to help our friends join the church. So our first impulse is not to talk about it and to suppress it. Yeah. To keep that information from our friends because we want them to join the church. And this is what the church means when it talks about protecting the good name of the church. First off, you have to have a good name before you can protect it. This calls into question their ability of discernment when they're calling bishops and stake presidents. Um, and so I think that's the issue there. But on, on the other hand, you know, again, we we'll make the allowance. We'll just we'll say, just to think about this, that the church is true and there are bishops who have done these things. If the church is true and these are people that represent God, not the bishop, but I mean the leaders uh, above the bishop and such, would their behavior change? Like, what would their responsibility be to the congregation? Would it still be the good name of the church if the church is true and like God is leading this church? What I'm trying to get at is that even even if we're saying that everything about the church is is accurate and it's it's God's church on the earth. There are major flaws in it with how it interacts with people and its congregation specifically in situations like this. Like even making the most allowances that we can for these scenarios, a believer that, that knows all the tricky history but chooses to stay in, you can't make allowances for some of their behaviors. There's just no way to do it. No, honestly, I think that this is simply what happens at the end of the road when you start down this road of protecting the good name of the church, which is if leaders do bad things and horrific things even, then your first impulse is going to be to suppress that because you don't want the church to get a black eye because then people are not going to be as likely to join. Remember, exaltation is the end game. So therefore, you're going to suppress it. And you're going to send in your lawyers as quickly as possible and talk to victims and have them sign non-disclosure agreements for a sum of money. Yeah, get all right? the NDAs out. Yes. So that's the, that's the important part of that. The flip side of doing it that way is you end up victimizing and not taking care of the members of the church that you're the leader of. Yeah. And isn't that exactly what a pastor should do? Somebody that has responsibility over a congregation? Well, one might think so. One might think so. But it's clear from the way the leaders act is that their duty is not to the members of the church. Their duty is to the church itself. But where would I get such an idea? Where would I get such a radical idea? I don't know. The New Testament, maybe? Perhaps. (laughs) Yeah, we just got to get rid of that New Testament out of the standard works. I think we'll do that at the next general conference along with the facsimiles in the book of Abraham. Just go with a red Sharpie through the whole thing and change everything. They have already taken Jesus so much out of the church that they have to insist on using his name in the title of the church. I think we're ready to talk about um, attorneys in the church 
and historians. Yeah. Are we ready to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump in that direction. And can I mention um, Boyd K. Packer's talk from, I'm not sure I have the, uh, the date on it. It was 80 or 81 at any rate. I can never remember this for some reason, but it was called the man is far, far greater than the intellect. Tis a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. The mantle is far, far greater than the intellect. Not just far greater, but far, far greater. It's almost like three woes in a row. Oh my whoa, gosh, whoa, yes. Whoa. Or 10 <laughs> in Jacob. Book of Mormon's true. Um, so <laughs> I, got, I got to think he was just like, whoa, whoa. Like think, like trying to think of what he was going to say next. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. There's probably a couple of really long ones in there. Whoa. Yes. It's actually, it's page 11 on my screen because they don't start with page one. This is page nine of the article in BYU Studies when his talk was published there. And this is where um, the leaders of the church envision leaders of the church. And we're going to get to historians too. Because this talk was given against the backdrop of Leonard Arrington's dismissal as church historian. Boyd K. Packer and the people who were in his camp among the apostles who were against the kind of warts and all history that Leonard Arrington was doing back in the 1970s. Uh, they were basically winning and um, Leonard Arrington was going to have to pack up his bags and move down to BYU and not be the church historian anymore and operate and function in a much more limited capacity where he doesn't have all the access to, you know, the beans in the church's <laughs> archives. We're going to have to start calling it beans now. That's, That's just funny. Right. <laughs> and he's talking about that, right? And he's talking about historians. And he's talking about historians have this idea that they should be impartial. You know, like, that's terrible. What a stupid idea for historians <laughs> to think they should be impartial. And he actually poo-poos that idea over and over. And what he says is he wants historians to act more like generals for an army. And that's where he quotes Joseph Fielding Smith. Okay. He says, um, there is much in the scriptures and in our church literature to convince us that we are at war with the adversary. We are not obliged as a church, nor are we as members obliged to accommodate the enemy in this battle. President Joseph mm. Fielding Smith pointed out that it would be a foolish general who would give access to all of his intelligence to his enemy. Well, of course he would. That would be ridiculous. No general is going to give the intelligence to the enemy because they're going to keep it secret and use it, <laughs> hopefully to win the freaking war. And he goes on. It is neither expected nor necessary for us to accommodate those who seek to retrieve references from our sources, distort them and use them against us. Now, once again, he's talking about a general who has secrets, right? The intelligence. And now he's liking it to church archives. And this is where he's talking about their sources, right? And uh, this is the basis of the idea that really anti-Mormon literature doesn't exist. It's really just church literature that's being exposed to the members. And then... Yeah, there's there's a couple of problems with an analogy like that, but go, go ahead. Tell me about your problems. Well, if you're going to if you're going to relate it to a general and strategies, then these things that they're hiding would be strategies to save souls. And that yes. doesn't that doesn't correlate to history that knowing the the events of the early church 
have nothing to do with the strategy to save a soul, wouldn't that be this, you know, the covenant path that they talk about, learning about Christ, getting baptized, going to the temple? That's the strategy. That's the battle plan, if you will. But history has nothing to do with strategy. So, so this sort of a comparison of hiding history is, is silly to me. Well, I'll tell you there, I want to push back against you because the LDS church's truth claims are so enmeshed and intertwined with historical claims. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That if people find out that the history is messy and even contradictory, then you have instances like uh, the 1832 account of the first vision where Joseph Smith only mentions seeing one being, right? And already having concluded that the church, none of the churches were true. Right. And Joseph Fielding Smith coming upon that and saying, no, this can't get out. So that is something that makes that is more likely to lead to a loss of faith or destroy faith. And therefore, it has to be cut out and hidden in the safe for decades. So what you're saying is that the history and the the problems are not the strategies that they're hiding. The strategy is to hide those things. Yes, the strategy is to hide those things, to win the war against the adversary, against Satan, because that's who the war is against. And then once you've framed it that way, then everybody who is trying to expose the truth that you're hiding is on the side of Satan. And that's what he means when he says, um, it is neither expected nor necessary for us to accommodate those who seek to retrieve references from our sources, right? We don't have to let them into the archives to look at the full history. We don't have to accommodate them. But he says not only to retrieve references from our sources, but he also says to distort them and use them against us. Well, there certainly are sometimes people who distort sources to use against the church, but more often than not, they don't distort them at all. It's just the fact that they are revealing them that is the problem. Like I like I don't know anybody who distorts the um, the 1832 account of the first vision. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But it's the fact of its existence and what it contains that generally is the problem with people's testimonies. Not any kind of distortion that you might want to throw upon it. His, his use of the word distortion there it rubs me the wrong way because that's precisely what they have done with the history. So if they're going to decry the opposition uh, and accuse someone else of having distorted the history that's precisely what they're doing in an effort to promote faith true but theirs is the distortion for god okay so lying for the lord they're distorting for the lord (laughs) distorting for the lording that's right (laughs) and now he goes yeah to the lawyer thing and i agree with you 100 but of course that from their point of view their distortions are valid because they lead to faith yeah but where can you draw the line then other people's distortions are invalid because they destroy or damage faith so the line is you can only distort if it's going to save souls You can only lie if it's going to save souls. You can only murder, cheat, steal. The the exception to any sort of morality that they have is with the responsibility to save souls. Exactly. I'm trying to make sure I'm trying to make the connection as as crisp as I can, because it's very. You say that like there's something wrong with it. (laughs) No, no, no. I just I'm trying to spell it out because it's (laughs) it's very utilitarian. And, And I 
I think that that is the, the best way to look at their methodology is they're willing to compromise morals in order to bring about what is in the greater good for their, in their opinion. Absolutely. And there can be no greater good than the exaltation of God's children. Man, those beans must be so good. <laughs> They're so good. They're starting <laughs> to get a little bit ripe, actually. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. Now for the lawyer analogy, because they want their historians and all their leaders and all their members. Remember, it's uh, everybody. Mm-hmm. He says, we are not obliged as a church, nor are we as members obliged to accommodate the enemy in this battle. So this is for everybody, but especially for the church historian, where they want the church historian not to act as a historian, but as a lawyer for the church. I'm back to the talk, page nine. Suppose that a well-managed business corporation, it's funny he would be referring to the church as a an organization. Yeah, the corporation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, a corporation, <laughs> right. But of course, well-managed. Yes. This oh, is very well-managed. Very well-managed. Yeah, it's so funny. Uh, well, he says well-managed because uh, it's a well-managed business corporation is threatened by takeover from another corporation. Okay. So I think he's putting that in there to show that well-managed business corporation, which is the LDS church, it's threatened by takeover from another corporation. Well, it's not because it's not well-managed that it's threatened by to, to be taken over. It is because it's because of the damn lawyer. So suppose that the corporation bent on the takeover is determined to drain off all its assets and then dissolve this company. Funny that assets would be foremost in his mind and the yeah. draining off thereof. Yeah. I mean, especially when they alone could fund the ending of world hunger, but you know. But but only for a while because people get hungry all over again. That's true. But it's about seven, like the estimates are like $7 billion a year to feed every person on the planet. Really? They could foot that bill for a couple of years, I think. That little? Yeah. Not, not to make it sustainable, but just to afford it. Well, that's remarkable because I understand that's about the amount of interest that the LDS Church is making on the Enzyme Peak Fund annually. Man, that's yeah, that's funny. Almost miraculous, the sort of coincidence. Wow. That, that's actually sobering. Yeah, it was sobering. when I, I mentioned that in one of my previous episodes. I can't remember which, but back in October. Um, and when I, when I said it, it was like, I don't know. I was, I was feeling down for a couple of days about that because it's a thought like that really is indicative of how problematic the situation is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Back to the analogy. So you got this corporation well-managed threatened by takeover of another corporation. And he goes on, you can rest assured that the threatened company, i.e. my company, i.e. my corporation, the LDS church would hire legal counsel to protect itself. Okay, so now the historian is the legal counsel that's been hired by the church to protect it against takeover by a hostile corporation. All right. Now he goes on. Can you imagine that attorney under contract to protect the company, having fixed in his mind that he must not really take sides, that he must be impartial? You see, now an attorney has to take a side. That's what attorneys do. Yeah, that's the role of an attorney. Right. And he's not supposed to be impartial. He's supposed to be partial. And I say he because I'm an attorney and I'm a he. Sorry. It could be a she as well. They actually do have female lawyers nowadays. But this this is pointing out to a problem that they're taking the side 
opposite truth. What is truth? Well, I'm I'm saying in reference to some of the the sticky problems with church history, the inconsistencies with some of the doctrines. Um, regardless if the church is true or not, and again, you know what is truth, but regardless if it's true or not, they are taking a point directly in contrast with what we know to be true about church history. Yeah. And when you say true, it's just a a slippery term. It's a bit vague. It's subject to interpretation. I would say uh, fully accurate to the best of our knowledge, both sides of the story, the good and the bad and the indifferent and getting a full picture, which is what we would normally do when we're going to make any major purchase in life or make any major life decision. We want to investigate it and research it and find out the good and the bad. Like a commitment of 10% of your income for the rest of your life. Oh, yes, exactly. That kind of uh, going on a mission, blah, blah, blah. Becoming a Mormon is the biggest decision you're ever going to make in your life. Believe me, you may not know it at the time like I didn't when I was 19, but that's the facts, Jack. So here we've got this imaginary hypothetical attorney slash church historian for the church. Can you imagine, this is what um, Elder Packer says, can you imagine that attorney Under contract, or I think I read this before, under contract to protect the company, having fixed in his mind that he must not really take sides, that he must be impartial, suppose that when the records of the company he has been employed to protect, church archives, are open for him to prepare his brief, church history, he collects evidence and passes some of it on, excuse me, and passes some of it to the attorneys of the enemy company. What's he talking about? He's talking about historians finding stuff in the church archives that is true, but not useful to the church, not useful to their goal of getting people to the celestial kingdom. And he passes some of that. He exposes that. He writes about it. He includes it in publications. His own firm may then be in great jeopardy because of his disloyal conduct. And it's interesting that he says his own firm. I hadn't actually noticed that before. I had thought he was talking just about the attorney or the company. The corporation may then be in great jeopardy because of his disloyal conduct, but he's talking about the firm that he works for. Maybe that's telling of how he views the relationship of the church leaders to the church, almost as as an organization working for or hired by the church to represent them. I think maybe that's true because I I think he picked his words very carefully in giving this talk. And then he asked this rhetorical question, which makes absolute sense in terms of a lawyer, but no sense at all in terms of a historian, unless you see them as one and the same. Here's the question. Do you not recognize a breach of ethics or integrity or morality? Yeah, that's not a question you would ask a historian. When you're when you're talking to a historian, you would you would ensure that they are impartial to the facts, that they are presenting it without bias and without interpreting them, just presenting here's what we found, here's what these journals say, here's what you know, here's what the evidence shows happened, without any sort of spin on the the reasoning behind it or or anything. You would want a historian to have impartiality. Well, absolutely. In fact, that's considered to be sort of the the rainbow's end that historians chase after constantly is to try to be as impartial as they can while recognizing that everybody has their own biases, but seeking to overcome them in writing full, accurate history. Yeah. 
The historian's duty is to history. The lawyer's duty is to the church, at least if it's a church lawyer. What they want to do is have the historians act as lawyers, which is why they hire lawyers to act as historians. And then he ends with this uh, paragraph where he says, I think you can see the point I am making. Yeah, I can see the point you're making pretty clear, maybe more clear than you would like me to see it, Elder Packer. He goes on, those of you who are employed by the church, and notice he's talking to CES, he's talking to the teachers and the professors, historians, everybody, not just to the lawyers. I don't think there were any lawyers necessarily in the audience. Those of you who are employed by the church have a special responsibility to hide the beans. No, he says, to build faith, you have a special responsibility. It's the same thing. You have a special responsibility to build faith, not destroy it. If you do not do that, i.e. build faith, but in fact, accommodate the enemy who is this, who is the destroyer of faith, yeah. you become, in that sense, a traitor to the cause you have made covenants to protect. The only way I can make sense of this is that they believe and that they believe that this is the best way to save the most souls. Oh, absolutely. That's what they believe. And that's got to be an indication of how bad the stuff they're hiding really is. Yeah. And I've always wondered and postulated, like, what else is there in these archives that we will never see? Like, we will never have any idea about, you know, what journals or what, you know, letters are hidden in these archives. Well, right now we've got the Joseph Smith papers, but there's so many things uh, we can never know what we don't know. Yeah. All we can know is that for decades, the church has assured us that they are honest with us and that they tell us the truth. And then we find out that they have not been honest with us and that they don't tell us the truth, at least not in terms of the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I wonder, and I would love to get one of them and sit them down and ask them, how do they understand or how would they define the word truth in regards to their presentation of church history? Well, the truth will set you free. The truth will exalt you. <laughs> Therefore, the truth is the faith-promoting version of church history. That's where I was talking about truth being a slippery term and subjective. Yeah, of course. That's why I was, I was trying to see if we could get a definition of, what they're, of how they're using the word truth. I think that's how they're using it. It's with a capital T and a copyright symbol. That's the, that's the truth that they're using. And anytime they change it, it's still the same truth that it always was. Now, what do you mean by that? Are you being facetious? A little bit. <laughs> anytime that they have made adjustments to the Book of Mormon or Doctrine and Covenants and taking things out and hidden them, this has always been the same truth that it was from the beginning. Whatever we're presented today, present, and for those listening in the future, whatever you're presented in the future is what's always been taught since the beginning of time. That's true. This is what Adam taught too. You know, that, that's what we know. Yes, we have always been at war with East Asia. <laughs> uh, never start a land war in Asia. No, don't. And don't pick an, <laughs> don't pick an argument with a person who buys ink by the barrel. <laughs> and so this is, this is the whole thing. And this is why I think it is that it's more than a coincidence that the church regularly, in fact, except for the brief period of the 70s with Leonard Arrington, the church seems to regularly, if not always, hire or call 
or appoint attorneys to be the church historian or the heads of the church historian's office because the attorney recognizes that their allegiance is not to the history of the department over which they preside. Rather, their allegiance is to the church who is viewed as their client and who pays them and who therefore has the attorney-client relationship with them. Yeah. The biggest thing that I'm taking away from our discussion is whether you're a believer or a non-believer, because I have, listen to my channel, I have a mix of both, nuanced and and, um, those that have left. It's important to know how other people define the words that they're using, such as truth that we've been discussing. The way I was using it was is very distinct from the way that we have decided, you know, because we can't ask them, they're never going to tell us, but from the way that we have assumed that the church leaders are using it. So a word such as truth means one thing to me and means a completely different thing to the leaders when they're describing their relationship with historical facts. Yes. I think that's a good point that you've made. Yeah. It's, it's very important to understand definitions and we, we communicate with people all day long and we assume that they define words the exact same way that we do. And that's almost never the case because the way that we interpret language is influenced by where we grew up, the cultures, even the subcultures that we grew up in, you know, the, the locations and geography have different uses of the same words. Right. And so when President Nelson stands up at BYU, um, and this was 2018, I think in the summer, maybe toward the end of the summer, regardless, it was after the reversal of the of the policy. Yeah, the policy of exclusion. And I'm thinking it might have been more recent, but it doesn't make any difference when it was. He was at BYU and he gave a talk about prophets and he said unequivocally, prophets teach the truth. Yeah. Well, when he says that, does he mean truth as in telling both sides of the story and I'm up here just lying to you? <laughs> or does he mean by truth the faith promoting parts of church history, which is the truth that will lead you to eternal life? Well, the problem that jumps out to me immediately in a phrase like that is univocality. When they say truth, they insinuate that the prophets have always taught the same things, but that's not the truth. There is no univocality within the prophets of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's no univocality in the Old Testament or the New Testament. You get it fairly consistent throughout the Book of Mormon and then a different version throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. There's almost no univocality in any of scripture and in any, any of church leaders. There's no univocality anywhere. But the way it's presented is that they are always telling a consistent message. That's true. And you've got President Nelson who will say, prophets always teach the truth. And that when in that one venue, frequently when he's making changes, like the name of the church, right? Yeah. Okay, very classic example, because you've got Gordon B. Hinckley and the dueling apostles when 1993 general conference. And in the spring session, you've got President Nelson talking about you need to use the right name of the church and don't call it Mormon. And then in October, I believe it was of the same year, you've got President Hinckley or Elder Hinckley, whatever he was at the time. Wasn't he um, in the the first presidency at the time? I, I could at be least, mistaken. But. At least in the first presidency. He's been in the first presidency since Jesus was a kid. <laughs> he, um, But he gets up and says, no, nah, it's okay. We can call us Mormons. That's fine. And uh, basically just totally undercutting President Nelson. So President Nelson now becomes president. And as Wendy says, he's been unleashed to do the things that he's always wanted to do. So one of the first things that he's got to do is end world mispronunciation of the church's name. 
At first, I thought you were going to say end world hunger. You, you got me excited there for a minute, but uh... it was a riff on that. I thought I'd just get you excited for that and then yank it away at the last minute. Uh, yeah. So he's got to do that and say, no, it's not the Mormon church anymore. It's the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And when he says these things, he is undercutting prior prophets. And he sometimes actually says as much that this is a, a change that needed to be made basically because prior prophets have not been doing it correctly. But they always teach truth. Right. But they've always taught the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure we're on the same page. Yes. Did you have anything else you want to talk about this fine morning? We've covered everything that I had planned to cover and then some. Thank you so much for giving me your time today. You are so welcome. I have had a great time. I don't usually get to talk much about the law on Mormon related podcasts, but I think it has a lot of applicability here. And my good friends, the lawyers who are in charge of church history are doing their very best jobs as lawyers. Representing their client. But not, repeat, not as historians. <laughs> They're doing a service to the church while simultaneously doing a great disservice to history. I've got to say, this this hour is a little early for me, and uh, I did have to make a sacrifice to, to come on, just to let you know. A, a video game came out last night that I was anticipating for quite some time, and I only got to play it for a little bit last night because I had to get to bed. So, Oh, no. My gosh. Well, sacrifice brings forth the blessings of Radio Free Mormon. That's right. That's right. For those listening, um, it's uh, Elden Ring that came out last night. And that means a lot to a lot of people. Or to some or to none of the listeners. I have no idea. To me, I've never heard of it before. It's a, a video game um, where the, the story was written by George R.R. R. Martin and developed by uh, the company From Software. It's fantastic. I only played it for a minute last night, but it was it's already off to an excellent start. Oh, well, you're going to have a lot of fun over the weekend. I'm sure the last video game I played was Pong, I think. Now, um, did you, you bought that on release, right? I don't even know what that means. It was over at my cousin's house in the 70s in Southern California, and they had it on their TV. Thank you so much. And uh, if I ever have any other bright ideas, I mean, they're few and far between. I'll let you know and bring you back onto the show. Are you saying you think this was a bright idea? I think I think uh, maybe the audience might enjoy it. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Anyway, I've had a great time. Thanks so much. I appreciate being on Ramiumptum Ruminations. So there is my interview with Ramiumptum Ruminations on the subject of LDS law. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I want to express my appreciation to all of my listeners, and especially to those wonderful listeners who have taken the time and effort to make a donation to Radio Free Mormon. Org. Your contributions are what is keeping Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Well, that's about all for tonight. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. <laughs>